did Bill recognize the visitors? I just totally missed that. I don't know where I went, Bill, but went somewhere. So, Yeah, nothing box, that's right. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. Um, I want to delve into the subject of marriage this morning and spend some time looking at the landscape of marriage. Um, my prayer is that those of you who are single or divorced will also find some great blessing here. And uh, as we go through this, my sense is, is that we're all going to get convicted. And um, so I want you to know that if you think I'm talking about your marriage, indeed I am. Um, because I'm talking about your marriage, I'm talking about my marriage, I'm talking about all our marriages. So let's just have a prayer and begin. Father, we thank you for this great gift you've given us, the institution of marriage. We pray that we would honor you this morning and honor it and be called forward in our convictions and our sense of holiness before you. We just want to be more like you, Lord. And we want to be a blessing to our spouses. We do pray for our singles and those who've experienced divorce that, that they too would be blessed. Those who've lost their spouse, their lifelong love, we pray that they would also be touched. So Lord, we just give ourselves to you right now. Um, we pray for the conviction of your Holy Spirit, but we refuse any condemnation. And we just pray for a rich time in your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the title of this message is The Wheat and Tares of Marriage. And I, um, I've been thinking uh, the last year or so about the great possibilities of marriage. Typically, people get married because they fall in love or they want a best friend. They want a life companion. They want physical intimacy. Uh, they can no longer imagine life without the person that they're dating. They want what all of us want in many ways, which is relational comfort and love. This is a great possibility, isn't it? To be loved by one other person and to fully love that person as well. But you may remember the words of Gary Thomas in Sacred Marriage. I believe I've mentioned that before. Um, where he says, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? That's a great possibility in marriage too, isn't it? To be made more holy. He goes on and makes an even more powerful statement to me when his brother asks him uh, if he should get married or asks him some questions about marriage. And Gary Thomas says this, he says... Um, my brother was asking me a few questions about what marriage was like and should he get married. I thought for a moment and said, if you want to be free to serve Jesus, there's no question, stay single. Marriage takes a lot of time. But if you want to become more like Jesus, I can't imagine any better thing to do than to get married. Being married forces you to face some character issues you'd never have to face otherwise. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. Yeah. I thought I could. 
So here's another great possibility of marriage, and that's not only to become more holy, but to become more like Jesus. To experience the grace of God within marriage is another great possibility. How many of you have made the same mistake over and over and over again, and after a while, or um, I don't know, sometimes your spouse just looks at you and smiles and laughs and hopefully can reach that point where they say, you know, I just love you. I just love you. You're an idiot, but I love you. You know, the possibility of experiencing the healing and the grace of God. But one uh, thought that I've never heard anyone say before is that marriage is a possibility to display in a microcosm the kingdom of God. Have you ever thought about that? That in our marriages, in our relationship, uh, people can see the kingdom of God if we will work toward that end. What an incredible possibility. I was mentioning to one great saint in our body that um, I told her I was going to be speaking on marriage today, and she said, even us old folks need revival in our marriages. Please, please, please. That was her comment. And um, I won't say who it was, but she sits in this section over here. She has very white hair, and she loves the nation of Kenya. Uh, Millard gave me permission to say that too so but what a possibility revival in our marriages but the reality is we are all deeply flawed people we all have wheat and tares within ourselves our spouses have wheat and tares and therefore we have wheat and tares in our marriages I'd like to use the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13 uh, as a rough symbolic framework uh, to talk about marriage this morning. I'm not doing exegesis here, and I admit that. So please turn to Matthew 13 if you have your Bibles, and we'll read this, this parable together. While you're turning there, let me just say that I'll be referencing many scriptures today that we typically don't think about When we read them, we typically think about the body of Christ or a relationship with a brother or a sister. We don't usually apply them to marriage, but I think you'll agree with me that all these scriptures include marriage within within their reach. So here is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares also among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. My question I want to pose is, uh, if we are married, 
what type of marriages will we have? Will we have marriages of wheat or will we have marriages of tares? Will we have marriages that express the grace of God or will we have marriages that result in lifelong scars? Will we have marriages that display the kingdom of God or marriages that display something far short of that? I can't deal with all that I want to um, this morning, so what I've chosen to talk about are the common spiritual tears that every marriage must fight its way through. Uh, Not all of these will apply to your marriage or every marriage, but most of them will. So I want to deal with five spiritual tears in marriage. These are not sort of the boilerplate things you hear about better communication and so forth. I want to deal with spiritual issues if the Lord will reveal them. The first spiritual tear that many marriages experience is secret sin. Secret sin, unlike unlike our parable that says, let the wheat and the tares grow up together, uh, secret sin is a weed that has to come out now. Um, Sin that is secret is usually an addiction or some kind of compulsive behavior. Some easy examples would be drugs, uh, gambling, and uh, often it's some kind of a sexual sin. The secret sinner is convinced in the beginning as they begin to live out this secret life of sin, unbeknownst to their spouse, that this won't hurt any of my relationships. This won't hurt my marriage relationship. What, What she doesn't know won't hurt her. But what you see is the the secret sinner begins to distance himself uh, in relationships, and especially relationships with his spouse. And she can begin to sense, or he can begin to sense, that there's this internal withdrawal in um, the secret sinner. That goes to a place of shame, where the, the person who's caught up in this secret life begins to be embedded with shame. And, uh, the neck, and then very soon uh, begins to feel this self-loathing. That self-loathing begins to spill out in terms of contempt on their spouse. They're angry at themselves. They, they can't contain that. And so that anger begins to spew out on their spouse. Um, sometimes uh, if the spouse then knows about the secret, there's confrontation. Sometimes there's violence as the spouse comes against that stronghold, uh, that that secret sin. And inevitably, if if the person who's in that continues on and refuses to repent and get help, what happens? There's death to that relationship, isn't there? And so this is a sin that has to be weeded out. There's a saying in chemical dependency literature that goes like this. First a man takes a drug, then the drug takes the drug, and then the drug takes the man. Let me say that again. First a man takes a drug, then the drug takes the drug, and then the drug takes the man. Those who have successfully recovered from homosexuality say the antidote to homosexuality is not heterosexuality, but holiness. And indeed, I've seen that. Um, in my limited counseling experience is that when someone with same-sex attraction or, or, or homosexual drives pursues holiness, that is what delivers them from 
that, those attractions. So the antidote for secret sin is what? It's confession and repentance. Amen? Bring it out into the open. Secrecy is the devil's playground, and it takes a rugged honesty over and over and over to dispel that inner shame and bring about a reclaiming of who you are in God. I have all kinds of respect for a man or a woman who comes to me or any other mentor or pastor and confesses their sin, exposes their secret sin, repents, and begins the hard work of reclaiming who they are in God. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. So, when someone comes to us and uh, is caught in a habitual sin, a compulsive type of sin, what's our job? Our job is taken from Galatians 6, chapter one, uh, Galatians 6, verses 1 through 3. You might want to turn there with me. Galatians 6, verses 1 through 3. Our job is not to condemn or belittle that person, but to restore in a spirit of gentleness. Amen? Holding them very close, actually harnessing ourselves in the yoke with them for a season. Listen to the scriptures. Brethren, even if a man is overtaken in any trespass, or some versions uh, say caught, as in caught in the very act, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in what? A spirit of gentleness. Isn't that beautiful? Each one looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thus fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. I just want to say, if you are struggling with a secret sin this morning, I just want to encourage you in the strongest possible way to seek out a pastor or a mentor, a mature saint, and come clean about that sin. Don't wait, but confess and keep fighting. You serve a jealous God, and he's going he's to make sure you win the victory. Do you really believe that with me? He's going to make sure you win the victory. Secret sin is a weed that will destroy your marriage. It cannot wait until the end. It must be removed now. I want to move on to the second uh, spiritual tear in marriage, and that's uh, what I've labeled control battles. I'm sure you don't know what I mean, uh, but... Both men and women struggle with control issues and uh, sharing power in the marriage relationship. There is a, um, a very unique and uh, challenging concept coming out of um, relational research studies called boundaries. And in simplistic terms, boundaries in relationships are defining who I am and and who I'm not, and defining, trying to define in very clear terms who you are and who you aren't. Um, it's, it's where I stop and where you start, how not to get manipulated, how to let your yes be yes and your no be no, and be at peace within yourself about owning both. Um, 
Henry Cloud and uh, John Townsend have written a series of books called Boundaries. How many of you have heard, heard of these books or read them? Um, I find them very challenging. And in their book, main book called Boundaries, they have ten, what they call ten laws of boundaries. And the third law is called the law of power. The law of power. And the central truth of this law of power is that we cannot change others. That is a bitter pill to swallow. We cannot change others. And let me, let me read to you where they talk about this. He says, um, you can work on submitting yourself to God and work, working with God to change you, but you cannot change anything else, not the weather, the past, the economy, and especially not other people. You cannot change others. More people suffer from trying to change others than from any other sickness, and it is impossible. Now, this is important to catch this next line. What you can do, though, is influence others. You can influence, but there is a trick. Since you cannot get them to change, you must change yourself so that their destructive patterns no longer work with you or work on you. It is often the best day in a marriage when a spouse gets so frustrated with the other spouse that they throw up their hands and they say, I give up. I cannot change you. How many of you who have been married have had that kind of a moment and it served you well. I give up. I cannot change you. I'm going to have to leave it to God. Um, last night I was talking to uh, Brian and Esther and Nathaniel about this point, and I was saying, what scriptures support this point? Uh, Help me, help me find the scriptures that support this point. I know it's true, and yet I, I don't clearly see it in scripture. I see 1 Corinthians 13.5 where it says, Love does not insist on its own way. That's pretty good. But uh, Brian, in the midst of that conversation, said, Jim, have you ever read Nathaniel Hawthorne's story uh, called The Birthmark? A short story called The Birthmark. It's a story about a scientist, uh, an alchemist uh, who uh, marries a beautiful, beautiful young lady. His obsession is science, and his obsession is her. And uh, there's only one problem, and that is she has a small birthmark on her cheek. And he begins to, after they're married, he begins to focus on that birthmark. And it begins to bother him more and more and more. And um, he's, he's, he's thinking in his mind about the, the potion that would make that birthmark go away. And then his, his bride would be perfect. And he becomes obsessed with that birthmark. And he lets her know. And, 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 and it just pervades their relationship until finally she says, I'd rather be dead than, not, than you not be pleased. And so do whatever you have to do to get rid of that birthmark. And you can guess that he... He jumps at the chance, and he makes a potion, and she drinks it, 
And sure enough, the birthmark slowly disappears, uh, and he's, he's elated with joy uh, because now he has his perfect wife. But in the last paragraph of the story, she says, uh, I'm dying. And sure enough, she passes from, from this life. And isn't that how it is for us? We can get obsessed with some weed or defect in our spouse and, um, and in the process of grabbing some, that, trying to grab that weed, we, we grab some tears and we hurt uh, the very thing that we're trying to see accomplished. The scriptures do say that iron sharpens iron and we are to uh, speak the truth in love, but I don't believe we're to then go on and try to make it happen. Chuck Ferry used to say, our job is to bear witness to the truth but not to enforce it. It's good. Our, our job is to bear witness to the truth, but not try to enforce it. And Jesus shows us the way to influence people, the way to uh, impact people in Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. You know this passage very well. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if you want to change your spouse, it seems to me that the way to do that is to humble yourself. The way up is down. Um, And then in Galatians, the, the verse we already looked at, there's a second Uh, prescription for those who want to change their spouse or remove, see some weed removed. It's in um, chapter 6, starting in verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one, this is the line, but let each one examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another, for each one shall bear his own load. So there's a focus, there's this exhortation to focus on yourself. If you're embroiled in control battles in your marriage, my prescription would be give up, number one. Number two, humble yourself. Number three, focus on yourself and not your spouse. And four, devote yourself to serving and loving your spouse. Laura tells me that there are certain kinds of weeds that it's better not to dig deep into the soil and pull out. Um, that, that you actually, the best, the best process is to pinch them off right at ground level. And control issues are that kind of a weed where you have to continually pinch that off in yourself. That desire to ascend that desire to control, that desire to dominate.
So the second tear of marriage that we all deal with is one called control battles. Weed number three is avoiding the divine order for marriage. This is a uh, submission and headship is one of those ancient doctrines of our faith that have become very politically politically unacceptable, politically uncorrect, Uh, very PC currently, and and really quite PC and not PC in the uh, church as well, not politically correct. But the bottom line is, in our flesh, wives uh, tend to avoid submitting to their husbands. And men in their flesh tend to want to just throw all the decisions and all the burdens on their wives and just be very passive. Or we flip over into being very dominating and lording, over, lording it over our spouses in the flesh, right? These are things we deal with every day, battles we fight every day. Yet have you ever thought of this, that there is great beauty in godly submission, great safety in godly headship, a real chance to display the kingdom of God in a way that the world just has no clue what that looks like. And so I want to make you aware of uh, the, best, uh, the best reading that I've ever come across on this subject is from a book called The Christian Family by Larry Christensen. How many of you have perhaps read this book? It's an old book. It was written about uh, 1970. But um, in this book, there is a chapter called God's Order for Wives and a chapter called God's Order for Husbands. And I want to read some, some segments from those chapters, first about the wives and then about the husbands, for you to, to ponder on and maybe pique your interest to, to read these chapters. Here's what he says about wives and submitting. He says, in all of this, however, it's important to distinguish between submissiveness and servility. A wife who sees that her husband's judgment is wrong or unwise should tell him so with all respect, but freely and honestly. The judgment, wisdom, and opinion of a loving wife is one of man's greatest assets. It saves him from many a foolish mistake, and it is his privilege and responsibility as a husband, to receive the wise counsel of his wife. The wife who says quietly, do whatever you think is best, never offering an opinion even when she sees that her husband is heading the family for trouble, is not being submissive but foolishly servile. She must tell him her thoughts fully and make her case as strongly as she can, never laying aside her respect but never concealing her honest doubts about a particular decision. When she has done this, then she may let the decision rest with her husband, trusting God to give him good judgment. Submissiveness is not a matter of mere outward form, but of of inner attitude. That's an important point. I remember saying to Laura uh, some years into our marriage, "Why, why can't I just say, this is how it is? And you say, okay. Uh, Because... She would fight me. I would get, I would get what I called blowback. Um, and, and then she said this beautiful thing. She said, Jim, you know, some women I know, many women I know, 
will outwardly show submission, but inwardly their heart is, is not with their husband at all. She said, with me, you will get what I honestly think and feel, and then I will go to work on my heart. And I thought, I can live with that. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. So, um, then another, another passage on the woman that I think is good is this. She must see Christ in her husband. Just stop right there. She must see Christ in her husband. She must, by a continual act of faith, hold fast to this, that in honoring him she honors Christ who has set him to be her head. Upon all who bear the dignity of ruler, judge, and father, there is laid something of the dignity of him who is the ruler, judge, and father. Thus does it rest also upon the husband as the head of the house. Now, for the men, um, he says this. At first glance, one sees the husband and father set as authority over his wife and children, And this seems like a fine perch for the man. I am the lord of my castle, he says. I am the sovereign. I am the liege. I like that. I've asked Laura to call me my liege, but... (laughs) But one must look deeper, for the divine authority vested in a husband and father is modeled upon Christ, and Christ's authority was rooted in sacrifice of himself. Here we touch on the spiritual taproot of God's order for the family, sacrifice of oneself. Only when Calvary was behind him did he come to his disciples and say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The authority of Christ, and therefore the authority of a husband and a father, is not a human fleshly authority. It is not one person lording it over others. It is a divine and spiritual authority which is rooted in the sacrifice of oneself. Just one other section. Uh, Well, in the interest of time, I I better not. Um, All right. I knew you'd say that, so I just... Okay, how does the husband exercise this responsibility? By lording it over his wife, by giving the orders and seeing that she carries them out, by lecturing her on spiritual life and principles? No, he gives himself up for her. That is, he goes the way of the cross before her. Isn't that a beautiful statement? He goes the way of the cross before her. He shows by example what it means to die to self, and he does this not only for his own sanctification, but on her behalf. In short, he does not drive her. He does not even lead her in the conventional sense. Rather, he draws her into Christ as he himself allows the cross to do its work in his own life. How does this work out in practice? Consider an everyday example. When an argument flares up in the marriage, it's the husband's place first to humble himself and beg forgiveness for whatever was wrong in his behavior. This is death to the ego. It may be that the wife's guilt is as great or greater, no matter. His call is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Jesus humbled himself under the guilt of sin while we were yet sinners. 
In this situation, a husband does not judge his wife's sin and above all does not calculate what effect his repentance might have upon her. He simply goes the way of the cross, denying self, giving up his own rights, because this is God's call to him as a husband. The gateway to all spiritual life and blessing is repentance. I think we can say amen to that. As the spiritual head of the family, the husband and the father must be the first to repent. Very challenging um, take. I, I find that his writing is very, uh, very heavy on the husband. In, not in a bad way, but in a good way. So men, if you're looking for, um, I, I need to get a hold of this in a better way, I just recommend that you check that out. When I see a man honoring his wife, bragging on her in public, sacrificing for her, leading like a true man, I am inspired to be more like Jesus. And when, likewise, when I see a woman who is honoring his wife, excuse me, a man, what did I say? <laughs> when I see a wife honoring her husband and deferring to him and uh, bragging on him in public, I just want to say, wives, be careful about what you say about your husband, especially in public. You know, I, I've, frankly, in the church here, I've seen women griping about their husbands. Um, and I guess I've seen it the other way, too, but not, not as much. So when I see a wife deferring, submitting to her husband, I'm inspired to be more like Jesus. The other night... Laura and Esther and Brian and I were talking about their future, and um, Esther and Brian become very passionate when, um, sometimes, and, and Esther's always been very passionate, always very verbal, and yet in this conversation, uh, Brian was going toe-to-toe with her, wanting, wanting to be able to talk, and several times I saw Esther, you know, defer to Brian even though I knew she was bursting inside, wanting to say something. And afterwards, I commended her on that, and I just said, Esther, that, that's just really inspiring for me to see you honoring your husband that way. And it's true. It's a beauty that's rare and not understood by the world, but we can demonstrate the kingdom of God. The fourth weed is a really interesting one. And that is rejecting the image of God in our spouse and trying to create our own image instead. One marriage scholar said it this way, too many people spend their entire marriages trying to conform their spouses into their image rather than allowing God to conform their spouses into his image. We become image makers in essence, trying to pull the weeds we see out of our spouses and damaging the wheat, which is the image of God that he's trying to create in our spouses that's different from our own desires. The scholar goes on to say, celebrate who your spouse is. He says, we focus on, this is the way I see it. You need to see it this way as well. For instance, the house needs to be clean to my standard, not clean to your standard, because my standard is the right one. In essence, we say, if you don't see this issue my way, then you are wrong. And I need to help you be right, which is the way I see it. And what if you're not right? Or what if you are, but there's a different way, your spouse's way, to get there? Can you step back 
and celebrate him being him. How much better for our marriages if we'd say, okay, that thing irritates me. You wonder what God's trying to do there. What character issues is God helping to define in me? And then, and then we allowed God to work without getting in his way. If I choose to express love, acceptance, and forgiveness, then the Spirit of God can come in with conviction and, con- and condemnation. He, he can prick her heart in ways that I can't begin to. He can point out far deeper issues than I can. If I believe the best in her, focus on her strengths, care for her, and allow her to be who God is creating her to be, then God shows up with his power and conviction and can really grow her up if I step back and allow him. So this author is saying, focus on the positive in your spouse, that this is the This is the antidote to trying to create your spouse in your own image. And uh, I was thinking of Philippians 4, 8 through 10 in this regard. This is a passage that I don't think when we read it normally, we think about marriage. But listen to these words with marriage in mind. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence or anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Focus on the positive traits. So I think in this category, our job is to feed, not weed. Amen? Our job is to feed the positive things in our spouse, the things we see God doing that are good, and fertilize that, fertilize the image of God in our spouses and focus on the wheat. In Romans uh, chapter uh, 14, starting in verse 4, we, uh, we read this, Who are you to judge the servant of another? Think of your spouse in this case. To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat, and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord, or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. And then jumping down to verse 13, Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Let's focus on the weed in our spouses. Amen? and leave the image-making up to God, and this will bring revival. This will display the kingdom of God. The last weed I want to touch on is the weed called strongholds, inner strongholds of the heart. These are beliefs that we carry around about our spouse that are destructive and not true. Bill Gothard defines a stronghold this way. A stronghold is a mindset or a conclusion contrary to Scripture. Francis Frangipan says, A stronghold is a demonically induced pattern of thinking, 
a house made of thoughts, which has become a dwelling place for satanic activity. My definition would be any tenacious thought or thoughts contrary to Scripture upon which we base our perspectives, feelings, and behavior. See if those of you that are married or have been married, see if these thoughts um, have been in your mind ever as a stronghold in your marriage. He will never change might be one. Uh, I've had several men come into my counseling and say, I am just a paycheck to her. Some men struggle with that. All she does is nag. You know, words like all and never, paradoxically, are never true. (laughs) He is just like his father. I'll never please her or I'll never please him. I remember Laura and I feeling that way about each other somewhere 10 to 15 years into our marriage. I just, there was this frustration that we would never be able to please each other. Um, But we got there, didn't we, hon? Hallelujah. He doesn't care about me. I am a failure. I will always be afraid. I can't hear God's voice. My spouse can't hear God's voice. Strongholds of the mind that are often there, and we have to fight these off as lies from the enemy. You guys know the uh, signal scripture to deal with strongholds. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. When you strip it all down, strongholds against our spouses amount to good old-fashioned judging. Judge not lest you be judged. For the, by the same measure that you judge, you shall be judged. Powerful words. And the effect on ourselves of strongholds is that we resign ourselves to being victims often. We consider ourselves trapped. I'm trapped in this. I'm just trapped. There's no way out. And yet the truth is we are uh, mature Christian adults with the spirit of Christ in us, that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us. The sky, the world is open to us. We have but to forge ahead and make it happen. We can do whatever we decide to do with the spirit of God working inside of us. And so don't give in to that victim mentality Judging each other is a terrible weed in marriage, and it must be overcome. But there's a second kind of stronghold in marriage, and that is demanding that our spouse be someone they are not. A man named Bill and his wife Ann came to see a counselor. When Ann looked at Bill, she clearly adored him. She was an attractive woman in a plain kind of way. Bill told the counselor, I was captain of the football team. That was important to him. The counselor said, I heard it several times. 
I could date anybody in school I wanted, and I always dated the glamorous girls. The person I married, the person I'm married to is not that. I know she loves me. She's a great mom and partner, but I'm having a hard time loving her. I've gotten her makeovers, and she looks stunning. But she hates it. I've gotten her beautiful outfits, and she doesn't like them. I'm learning that I need a princess, and my wife is not that. I was so sad, the counselor said, because his wife had a lot of beauty. It wasn't about her not taking care of herself. It was the style and the way she did it. In his book, The Heart of Commitment, Scott Stanley writes that there comes a point where we have to grieve the loss of who our spouse is not. That part of celebrating them being them is grieving who they are not. I spent time with Bill helping him grieve the loss of a princess in his life. He would never be married to somebody who loved being gussied up. That part of his life had to die for him to move into celebrating who Annie really was, to appreciate the beauty he couldn't even see. Sometimes we need to be mature and understand that some of these fantasies we have about our spouses and who they're supposed to be according to our image has to die. And we need to then learn to celebrate who they really are. Does that sound right to you? Yeah. Ask God for a fresh and true revelation of your spouse, one that is positive and loving. The antidote here seems to me to be from Romans 15, verse 7. Wherefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. Isn't that a powerful verse? Accept one another, just as Christ also accepted you to the glory of God. Well, in conclusion, these are the five weeds in a marriage that must be overcome. Uh, the scars, if you will, if they aren't addressed. Secret sin, control issues, avoiding the divine order rejecting the image of God in your spouse, and strongholds. I just want to say, may God grant to us his incredible power and wisdom as we yield ourselves to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, as we yield ourselves to the Master Gardener. I, I wanted to, as I prayed about how to wind this up, I thought of asking for any couples who want prayer for their relationship, just a general prayer from up front here, uh, to stand. We could all use help uh, so that, you know, you're not making a, a bold statement that we're in terrible shape. You're just standing to say, I want revival in my marriage. I want to be able to honestly say or believe that we are displaying the kingdom of God. Amen? And I'm going to ask my brother Gordon to come and pray for our marriages. So don't be bashful. Stand if you'd like some prayer this morning. I'd like to take just a little bit of freedom to share a verse with you that fits right with the area that Jim was covering that has really been a conviction to me as a husband. 
And that is uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, where it talks about the responsibility of headship and what it means to be a covering practically. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. And if you're going to be claiming to be a covering, then be one and minister the word of God to your wife. Just read her the word of God, minister the word. It's a great responsibility. I have a young man I'm ministering to in Ohio whose wife uh, was in such depression and started manifesting his rebellion. It even threatened her life and their marriage. And he just texted me recently that uh, he's been reading the word of God over her and seeing incredible change. So there's a practical application. Well, Lord, we just ask you to bring conviction into our hearts that the Word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces and brings conviction and opens us with whom we have to do. We pray that, O Lord God, for the husbands, for the wives, the various applications that are here, uh, for life, for the relationship that we have with you as those who are single or who are divorced that there is this reality. So, God, we pray for that in Jesus' name. Bring those changes and bring the peace of God, the power of God, into our relationships and into our marriages. We pray for that. One thing that's been on my heart so strongly, Lord, protect, protect marriages. It is such a type of the relationship of the church to the Lord, of our relationship with you, and how the devil attacks that. Lord, send your angels, send your power and protection, and surround uh, these marriages, those that are in disruption. We pray that even this morning you would bring healing, deliverance, and the breaking of strongholds. God, we pray for that through the ministry of the word and through prayer and through the power of your spirit. And we receive all you have for us in Jesus' name. And they all said, Amen. Amen.